RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Dr. David Thunder is a permanent research fellow at the Institute for Culture and Society at the University of Navarra in Pamplona, Spain. He is a university lecturer and researcher in moral, political, and social philosophy. Dr. Thunder's professional passion is the study of the conditions under which a functional human society, that is, a human society that supports the freedom and flourishing of its members, can be created and preserved over time. And we asked Dr. Thunder to come on the program from Spain to explain what the EU's Digital Services Act means for freedom of speech in Europe and, by extension, the West. And Dr. Thunder is with us now. Welcome to Reality Check Radio, and and I love your name, if you don't mind me saying. I think it's a great name, Dr. Thunder. <laughs> Thank you. Great to be here. Yes, it is definitely. I like my name. I will yeah. say that much. It's got some cut through. All yeah. right. Um, I've been reading a couple of, uh, um, well, some powers on your substack. Here's one I want to read out before we start chatting. The fate of freedom of expression in Europe now very much hangs in the balance as the European Union has just enacted a law that empowers the Commission to significantly restrict the ability of citizens to use digital platforms to engage in robust and sincere democratic discourse. That doesn't sound too good. No, I think we're in a bad situation in Europe regarding free speech. Um, and I think this this act, the Digital Services Act, is going to restrict, significantly restrict um, people's ability to express themselves freely about science, politics, especially about issues that concern science and politics, um, anything that's controversial um, and that might dis be disagreeable to the European Commission um, could come in for uh, censorship under this under this act. But in an indirect way, uh, it's important to point out it is an indirect form of censorship because it's not that the European Commission is going to directly be censoring you or me. Rather, there will be an annual review of the conduct of these massive online platforms like Twitter, Facebook, um, TikTok, and so on. Um, and the Commission will have auditors going through mm -hmm. the behavior and conduct of these platforms and basically uh, saying, look, uh, this year, uh, we're seeing you haven't really managed the risk of disinformation very well, or um, we're seeing a lot of hate speech on your platform, um, and you're not really cleaning that up. Uh, so we'd recommend you do these, the following things. Um, and then if they find that they're not following their recommendations, they may find that they're not in compliance with the act. And if they're not in compliance with the act, you know, what happens? What's the consequence? They can be fined up to 6% of their annual global turnover, up to 6% yeah. of their annual global turnover. That's a massive billion, billion, billion dollar, billions of, of dollars they can be fined for, uh, you know, for being not being in compliance. Um, and perhaps one of the most disturbing aspects is that ultimately, uh, there's no clear definition of disinformation. There's no clear definition of hate speech. So it'll be up to the commission and their auditors to sort of just make it up on the fly and decide what they think disinformation is and what they think hate speech is. Well, will they make it up on the fly or will most of it be predetermined or at least a, 
a sort of a range predetermined. But what that does then, given the scale of fines, that that creates a self-censoring environment, doesn't it? Because you're not going to, if you're a platform, you're going to try and minimize your exposure to that risk. Yes, absolutely. I mean, if you're a platform and you're confronted with the possibility of massive fines and eventually the possibility of being completely suspended, having your services completely suspended in the European, in the Eurozone, then uh, you're going to be very attentive to these guidelines and you're probably going to err on the side of caution. And in fact, you're probably going to censor even more than the European Commission wants you to censor just to be on the safe side. So um, I think it, 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 it does generate what I would consider to be an atmosphere of legal uncertainty um, because for the simple reason that these categories, uh, like for example, here's another category, civic discourse. What does it mean to be a threat to civic discourse? Um, you know, that's a peculiar kind of idea to be a threat to civic discourse. Well, in practice, you can guess that for the European Union, a threat to civic discourse would be pro-Russian propaganda, pro-Russia propaganda in the Russia-Ukraine war. Um, and I suppose that probably for them, a threat to civic discourse would be someone, you know, um, say, criticizing um, vaccines. Um, but, you know, it's a slippery, sneaky kind of act because... You can't pin it down. You can't say in advance that these are the things they will censor. Um, they do talk about public health disinformation in a very general way. They mentioned that as a risk, um, one of what they call systemic risks um, to these platforms that they have to manage. Uh, but again, uh, ultimately, these categories, categories like disinformation and civic discourse and hate speech are intrinsically political categories. They're categories that are not the kinds of things that an expert can decide impartially. They're always going to be depend on your prior political convictions and your biases. And, um, and this is the great, uh, if you want, the kind of fallacy behind all of these kinds of legislation is, 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 is ultimately that they conceal or they try to conceal the fact that these categories, hate speech, disinformation, civic discourse, are all political categories. And so what you end up, uh, the situation you end up with is that um, a, a privileged group of people, an elite, um, will get to use these supposedly neutral categories in order to smuggle in their own politics and make sure that everyone conforms to their politics in the public sphere. And that is a totalitarian sure kind is. of scenario. Yeah. So presumably the elite, let's call them the elite, they know all this, right? They know that there's no way of buttoning down any sort of real meaning of what is hate speech or what isn't, where all those lines are crossed that you've just told us or mentioned um, and clearly defined there. Um, they know that, So, but they still go ahead. So, so they must think that the average person, the citizen, the EU citizen is – kind of not going to realize that? I mean, come on. It's crazy, isn't it? Well, you've probably lived through the last few years of the pandemic. Yeah, You're still alive, so, so, so this, this, this is proof that you've lived through it and survived it. So pitching the hate stuff and the, 
and, and the danger of of missing disinformation ha- that's actually worked for a lot of people that's worked terms. yeah for a lot of people that's worked i mean the thing is um you know there are people i believe a lot of people are waking up to the fact that you know what we considered before to be official authorities and sources are not as reliable as we might have liked them to be and are completely vulnerable to being captured by political and economic kind of forces um and that the whole idea that these public authorities were completely neutral in the first place i think is is pretty naive but um there are is still i would consider to be probably a majority of people out there um as we speak who continue to buy into the lines that they're fed by the BBC or by whatever the equivalent of that is in New Zealand um, or by yeah. in Ireland, the BRTE. Um, and, uh, you know, it's sort of the idea of prestige. It's the idea that there are some people who are kind of, you know, um, you know, somehow they're uh, kosher. You know, yeah. they're, 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 they have a Beyond kind question. of... A, Beyond question, they, they have a legitimation um, because they're very mainstream or because academics, you know, go on there and get interviewed, uh, the right sorts of academics, of course, um, who are in line with their narrative. And so, um, you know, uh, and a lot of people would listening to this uh, of, let's say, from the mainstream would think, oh, you're just a fringe. You're on the fringe. You know, you're you're just paranoid. Um, but I would I would invite them to step back and ask themselves just to, in the cool light of day, analyze all the information we've been fed over the last three years and how much of that has proved to be false, and then ask themselves were they reliable sources? And if they weren't reliable sources, why do we continue to believe them and put a trust in them now? Um, you know, so uh, so this is just the latest. This Digital Services Act is the latest in a series of assaults on freedom by the ruling elite. Um, And it comes from the very top. It comes in Europe from the European Commission, which is the most senior, let's say, governing council of Europe. Um, So uh, the rot, the complete lack of understanding of freedom and human dignity affects the very, very top of the structure of European, uh, of, of, of Europe. Um, And I think uh, what is also important to point out is that the European Commission is not elected by citizens and they're nominated. They're not elected. They're nominated within the political system. Um, And so, uh, you know, European citizens don't really have an easy comeback comeback against this kind of legislation because essentially it's passed by the European Parliament. uh, Fair enough. Um, European Commission is, is the one who proposes it and then enforces it. But the, ultimately, the member states' governments are the ones that allowed all this to happen. So uh, ultimately, citizens should be asking themselves, how did, they get, how did we get into this situation? Because our political leaders let us down and abandoned the cause of freedom. That's did how they we got aband- Did they abandon? Well, they, they did abandon it as far as the citizen is concerned here, possibly. But again these people are smart people they know what they're doing they know that they're abandoning this because what they want power they want 
this is all got to be all about controlling people, you know, and and one sided narrative is about control. Yes, I mean the thing is, I, I'm convinced that there are quite a few politicians whose own motives are not transparent to them, so to themselves. Oh, wow. So, okay. so what I mean by that is that um, you could you could have a scenario in which a politician thinks that they're doing good for the for for citizens and um they're really being motivated by a desire for prestige and power and prestige that's blinding them to let's say um to the truth about what they're doing um and uh, you know some people say people believe what they want to believe and in a sense there is an element of you know uh that the politicians now, for example, who rewrite the narrative of the last few years and say, well, we really didn't know what was going on. We had no idea. We were ignorant. Um, and But they were being warned all the time by experts who were you know, not given much, much coverage by the media that these lockdowns were going to be disastrous. But the, the, the revisionism is kind of that if you repeat something enough like a mantra, you yeah. might even half believe it yourself at the end after, after a while. And I think there's a lot of self-deception involved. Like human beings have an incredible capacity for self-deception, I, I believe. I believe we all have a capacity for self-deception. Yeah. And so, you know, that what I'm saying is just that it's not that people say, I'm going to screw people over necessarily. It's more that the power goes to their head and they have big, they develop a kind of a hero complex in which they think that everything they're doing is fantastic. Yeah, I think you're. I think you. It's quite accurate. I, the interesting thing, though, is listening to you talking. Is this is happening in multiple places? You've got your version mm -hmm. of it in the in, in Europe. We we are having the same things being talked about here. Maybe not quite the regime because we don't have the power that the EU does to keep the social media platforms in line with those massive fines and 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 constricting access to market etc but this is happening here it's happening in australia it's happening in other countries kind of the same with their own local tuning you know yes i mean the i mean really uh, you could say that we live in a global political culture even though it's a little bit of a cliche but the fact is that because the world is so interconnected technologically because, I mean, imagine, you know, maybe, you know, I don't know, 600 years ago or something, um, what happened in, in Europe, you know, wasn't going to reach, <laughs> you know, maybe. it wasn't going to reach across the world. I mean, you know, you'd have to a couple of centuries, ship maybe. Yeah, it was like, you know, the declaration of or the war of independence in, in, in America. They had to send a, a letter over in a ship to, to the king to, to let him know that they were at war. I mean, by the time the ship got there. Sure, there were probably a lot of other things that happened already and the war was raging. But um, now it's just you just look at your Twitter and or, you know, or you look at the newspaper online and you see things in real time. And I think this uh, technological moment in which you can pretty much have conversations across the globe and see things happening in real time. Is what has it, it has to do with that influences the the pace of change, and it also influences the way in which trends can take hold across the world, and so governments are extremely influenced by each other, and they watch each other's behavior, and so you know it was like a kind of a just watching the, the 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 watching how the lockdowns unfolded, 
you could just see, imagine each government scratching its head and wondering, oh, look, England's just gone with the lockdown and so we has France go. and so we, Spain. Go. We, yeah. we have to get on this train quick. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, well, someone might be- say, Hey, you, you, what were you doing? You were napping. You, you put us in danger. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and I mean, it is an interesting question to ask whether this, the spiritual demise or let's say the decadence of the moral decadence of the West, you know, basically the, the, the kind of the declining understanding of science, the declining understanding of, well, maybe we never had a particularly good understanding of science, but I would say certainly the declining understanding of freedom, the value of freedom, and the willingness to override that value for pragmatic reasons is something that has taken hold across the West. And, um, you know, it's actually difficult to diagnose it, but it's interesting to say that it's to see, to notice that it's happening across much of the Western world. Um, you know, uh, few parts of the Western world had the backbone to respect citizens' liberties during the pandemic. Trying to think, so, so maybe a few states in the US, yeah, like Florida, you know, did have lockdowns, but, Eastern but European for much countries. of the pandemic, yes, yeah. like Florida was an example. Sweden um, was respectful towards citizens' That's freedoms right. by yeah. and large, you know, but very few countries held out. And um, and so I think there is an authoritarian kind of drift across much of the West. Um, and I think we need to wake up. Citizens need to wake up and realize it is happening because it's easy to sort of tune out and just get on with your life. And if you're not affected personally, especially, you know, I mean, people who aren't political, who aren't engaged politically or who aren't affected by, you know, for, for whatever reason, they don't, don't feel the weight of these measures, they might think, Everything's just hunky-dory. Yeah, um, you know, the benchmark of, of of what people think is freedom does seem to be quite low. <laughs> and, uh, you know, during our lockdowns, um, and I'm sure you experienced the same, got a bit of wind noise in the background here, I um, experienced the same. You know, the people are measuring their freedom on access to a hairdresser or access mm. to a movie or a restaurant. And that was really, if they had that, everything was fine. And that's such an incredibly mm. low bar, isn't it? To measure it is. By. I mean, it's it's sort of a bourgeois kind of freedom, you might say. It's it's you know, let me just enjoy my life and have access to private pleasures. And if if you give me that, then I'll be happy. Uh, and that there is a fallacy behind that, which is not only that it's an impoverished idea of freedom that 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 I just go to the movies and that'll that I'll be happy with that. Um, but also that uh, the idea that these private freedoms will all remain completely um, sort of secure if I check out and I, I withdraw from the political sphere completely, or if I'm not allowed to participate or protest or express myself in the political sphere, then ultimately we will be controlled in the private sphere as well. I mean, that's a really important point to make. Because you you noticed, I'm sure, certainly I noticed how the sanct the, the 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 sanctity of the home, that you know this kind of ultimate last frontier, which is the private privacy of the home, was completely disregarded um, in the pandemic measures, and people were told in in many places how many people they could have in their in their homes. Yeah. Yeah. And so on, and um, you know uh, how many family members even that they could have at a at a, at a dinner, um, and 
And that shows that uh, the private sphere uh, is vulnerable uh, to politicization and to authoritarianism. Um, and you can't you, you can't pretend to kind of uh, ignore politics and then just think that the private sphere will be left left alone. You In know? Europe, you've got EU and you've got the member states. So there must be variations, uh, you know, country to country on being all in on this Digital Services Act. What, what sort of variation is there? For, and, uh, you know, how much of a spectrum from, you know, all in to, uh, we don't kind of like this? Well, uh, I'm I'm not sure because I haven't seen the breakdown of the of the votes in the European Parliament, because this had to be voted on in the European Parliament. Um, and my understanding is I'm fairly sure that it was a comfortable majority that passed right. this. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't hear of, say, uh, national governments kicking up a big fuss about this. Um, like in the European media right now, the Digital Services Act is almost completely considered as routine. Like you, you're not. I don't hear a lot of. Of course, there are conservatives or people who believe in free speech, who are trying to, who are criticizing this. But you don't hear high level government. You don't hear governments coming out and protesting against this, in general, right? And in the European Parliament, you'll always have some delegates, some people in the Parliament who will be very vociferous and will be speaking out against this. But in general, uh, I think it's safe to say that the majority of European governments um, have so, are, are not really interested in advocating defending free speech. And they are quite okay with this act. In fact, one of the clauses of this act is that the member states will themselves appoint digital service coordinators who will in turn appoint what they call trusted flaggers who are people who are basically nominated and paid to trawl through the internet and identify illegal content and then report to the platforms so that they can take that content down or act on their recommendations or on their reports. So all of the member states will be complicit in this censorship apparatus. Um, now, each member state will presumably interpret um, illegality in light of their national laws. Uh, but what the European Commission wants to do is it wants to make hate speech uh, an EU crime oh so that they can yeah. then, you know, s then expand the category of hate speech, the various categories of speech that count as hate speech be it gender, misgendering, or who knows what kind of categories could fit in there. Um, and then it'll be a Europe-wide uh, law. And then their trusted flaggers don't have to rely on local interpretations because they can basically just say, this is illegal in Europe. But this is the, the general trend that you see in the European Union right now. That is freaky, the way you um, explain that, because I can just see huge armies of basically spies just relentlessly looking for and, and it'll be at scale won't it it would have to be to get across all the content so um yes yeah, so it'll have to be a small army a small army of of people 
going through content on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and flagging it. Um, and, mm. they, and, and they will have to be given priority. This law says that the, that the uh, social media companies have to prioritize reports from these trusted flaggers and have to act on them. And my suspicion is that even though they could disagree with them, they have the right to disagree. They might say, I don't think this is illegal. But my suspicion is that to save time and to be more efficient and to avoid getting fined, they'll probably, a lot of them will probably just say, oh, look, it's been flagged. We'll take it down. Yeah, automatically. And then they'll rely on an appeals process and they'll say, look, if the person is really annoyed, they can always appeal it. Yeah. Grinding you know, slow words, process with hundreds of thousands of people are doing exactly. that. Um, exactly. Though on the other side, um, those platforms could crash in their um, user base, you know, their their audience. But as, okay, you, you said that you think a majority of citizens are still kind of haven't quite got it yet. But the way you said that, it sounded like it was a, maybe a, a closer run thing than perhaps before. So yeah. if that flips, those platforms have got a real problem. They've got a real audience problem. So they've got to think of that too, right? They have. Yes, they have. Um, but uh, the European Commission is not is not like working on a, in a free market. So in a sense, it's true that the platforms will suffer. But the but European could, what Commission... What I'm saying is, could they push back and say, hey, hey, wait on, you're ruining our business here. We're, you know, hmm. we're pushing back. Uh, yeah, I think they could. They could push back, um, and uh, I'm not sure exactly what form it would take. That pushback. Uh, I mean, I mean, you would think that, for example, tax revenues would be uh, something the European Union would would welcome from these platforms, and so I don't think it will be in the European Union's interests, for example, for those platforms to just be suspended in the European Union or to collapse. Uh, or go out of business or go bankrupt, um, but 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 politics is is not uh, politics can do a lot of damage to economic interests in the name of ideology and power, and so I think they could do a lot of damage to the economic interests of the platforms um, and get away with it. Uh, I believe they could get away with it. <clears throat> um, another thing, another possibility, is a legal challenge. Because Article 11 of the European Union Charter of Fundamental Rights protects the right of European citizens to, quote, hold opinions and receive and impart information ideas without interference by public authority and regardless of frontiers. Pretty clear. This is, this is guaranteed. This is guaranteed in the, in the Charter of Fundamental Rights. Now, I don't think any reasonable... I don't think a reasonable person reading this charter, reading this this article of the charter, could deny that there's a tension between this article <laughs> and time. the kind of the 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 enforcement of fuzzy categories like hate speech and disinformation by bureaucrats um, yeah. on massive platform digital platforms. So yeah. I think that we're there will be a there will be a legal challenge. Okay, a couple of uh, questions before we we. It's been really interesting speaking with you. By the way, has you just mentioned hate speech? Has anyone has any at, at any part of this anyone nailed down what that actually is? Well, um, as far as I hate speech. 
I mean, there are statements of various sorts um, by, you know, by say the European Council um, that that aren't exactly law, but they're more like sort of sort of soft law. Like there, there are statements that they've made in public or declarations um, to the effect that you know, hate hate speech is speech that could incite. Um, hatred, they repeat the word hatred, or violence um, against uh, certain groups. Um, and groups they've included are, you know, uh, say, ethnicity, race, nationality. So xenophobic discourse or discourse that, that they that appears to them to be, well, that they consider hateful or to be able to incite hateful feelings towards a certain group. Um, but this is very unsatisfactory, really, from a legal point of view. Yeah, good because luck with that, right? Good luck with how that. How do you define this even? I mean, like, say somebody just has an objection against immigration policy. I mean, you could imagine if somebody said, I don't know, if they said, I don't agree with open borders policy, or I think that uh, we've reached a kind of a tipping point where if we take in more refugees, we can't accommodate them, really. Um which is being that said person, right now. That's what people are saying right now. Which is what people are saying, you know. And and then somebody could come along and say, "Oh, that's hate, hateful discourse," because he's, because that seems to be kind of, you know, uh, riling people up against immigrants or or portraying them as a threat. Um, you can always spin it as hateful discourse. I mean, any robust, challenging discourse, any contentious discourse that discusses this or that category of persons um, could be construed as hateful. And um, ultimately, it's going to cut one way. It's going to cut, basically, hatefulness will be interpreted, and it always has been interpreted, to favor the dominant narrative. So, for example, uh, I'm Catholic. If somebody took a dig at me, and said, you know, you Catholics, you're so backward. You believe in, you know, you follow the Bible, and you know, and they, and you know, you must not be very intelligent. Uh, and they said, you don't really, you, you shouldn't even be participating in the public sphere, really. Uh, and I might take offense. I would take offense. I mean, I'd consider it to be an ignorant kind of comment, but I. I wouldn't want someone to come along and be shutting them up and censoring them, right? No, of course. But, but nobody will censor them. Nobody will shut them up because they're they're because we Catholics are not exactly well. Let's just say in my part of the world, uh, we're in a pretty small minority believing Catholics, yeah. and so we're not. We're, they're not going to, and and we're the type of minority that is just not very popular. So. You know, so that's these, a kind of a protected of hate speech. Yeah. Know, so that yeah, exactly. It's it's kind of like we're not relevant for hate speech. You know, you can you can have a dig at Catholics, no problem. But if you if you say anything against transgender, against someone yeah. who you know a lobby or someone who wants to change their sex or try to change change their gender, oh, you know, then the whole the force of the law is going to come down upon you. You're violent. We're going to. Yeah, and we might even arrest you, possibly. Wow. Um, so, I mean, I, I'm not referring so much to this particular act, but just as a, re a recent act in Ireland, yeah. 
in yeah, Ireland, a hate speech that. legislation that we've actually did. We've heard about did. that in Ireland, yeah. Yes, yeah. in which you can arrest people if you find offensive material in their home. Um, in, in, you know, in their journal, let's say, in their diary. They've written if, a few yeah, comments if, to themselves. It, according to this legislation, if there's grounds, if you could reasonably, uh, a, a judge could reasonably uh, construe or believe that you were going to publish it. Don't ask me how he could assume this. But if he believed you were going to publish it and it was on your hard drive in your house, they could get a warrant. They could go into your home and they could take your computer, confiscate your computer, and they could arrest you. Um, and they could put you in prison for, as far as I can remember, it was up to a, a year. Something like that. Um, yeah. So it's this is in Ireland. This is in right. Ireland, a country that prides itself on being progressive and liberal and, you know, um, it's, it's, it's Alice in Wonderland kind of stuff. Okay, so where is everything at the moment here now that we're talking with this act? Can you just kind yeah. of draw a line it, in the sand? Where, where, is, where, where does everything sit right now? Yeah, with the Digital Services Act, the European Act. Yeah, that's right, the European Act. Yeah. That that's that's already been passed and it's already in um, it's already you know been enacted. So uh, as we speak, this act um, is in place. And my understanding is there's a transitional period in which kind of the idea is that the platforms get their act together and they have to adjust to the requirements. And and so by a certain date. Um, I believe it's February or March of 2024. The act will be fully operative um, and will will be fully in place and and will be applied. And there will be periodic audits to check in and make sure that the platforms are doing due diligence. They call them due diligence obligations yeah. to you know to manage risks such Sounds as disinformation, like business, you know, or, or something legitimate. Well, yes. I mean, it sounds very much like we're just asking you to do a risk assessment, you know, internally, and then we'll give you some tips about how you could improve your risk your risk management. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, it almost sounds as if it was a voluntary code of conduct, you know, the way you read it, but it's not. It's not a There's voluntary a code of conduct. There's a big stick back there too, right? Why yeah, which is billions of dollars. Them. Yeah. Billions um, of dollars. What about new platforms that come along? Is there a threshold of users or audience size that this applies to? I mean, what if I set yeah. up a social media platform, it's a little thing in Europe, and people started saying things, would that come on the radar? Uh, not really, no, because this platform, this act is concerned with platforms of 45 million or, or more oh, uh, okay. users. So these are going to be your standard global uh, platforms, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, uh, these these sorts of Google, these sorts of platforms, um, which are, let's face it, are the platforms that probably most people are using. So, yeah, so obviously yeah. it'll have a huge impact, a massive impact, this legislation. Now, the, the only uncertainty, like I said, there is un, a lot of uncertainty because these these reviews that they will do, these audits are rather discretionary because, for example due diligence obligations are a little bit fluffy you know what what you know how do you decide if they were really if they behave themselves or not i mean ultimately 
it's not like it's not as if these things are very well defined you know what it means to observe a due diligence obligation or what it means for example to manage the risk of public health disinformation um you know so it's very vague in a sense and it's very open to either being enforced very rigorously or in a lax way and so until we see the the consequences and the impact it'll take a while to to understand the full implications but what scares me about this legislation is that it it, it gives a lot of discretionary power to the commission because these categories are wide open categories that the the commission can take in whatever direction they want um and i think they've done this deliberately i suspect they've done this deliberately because if they'd actually pinned down what these things meant and they'd tried to take a direct power to enforce hate speech and disinformation, they would have run into huge legal problems and there would have been a big political backlash. But this is kind of a really complex piece of legislation with lots and lots of aspects like transparency and advertising. And, and then they slip in within it, these audits. And a lot of people won't even notice. Yeah. Uh, and I can tell you probably if you did a poll of Europeans now on how many people know anything about this act, probably the majority would say they know nothing, almost nothing about it. And I guess if, it, if the whole thing's up and running and they're not aware of it, they won't notice what they never knew was was there in the first place. Yeah, I mean... I mean so I, you go on sale on just oblivious and... Well, yes, because for, for the majority of users, let's face it, the number of users who are going to get into trouble, you know, using a digital platform... Who are not just you know flicking through silly videos of dogs falling and things like that, the people who are actually engaging in serious or let's say making political claims, making scientific claims that could you know be on be contentious, um, are a minority of citizens uh, who engage in that kind of discourse. So, and then of those, how many of them? are going to say, going to be questioning the mainstream narrative, going directly against it. Again, a minority. So, so that means that if you're not engaging in contentious discourse and you're not, you're not threatening the mainstream narrative, the only way this will affect you is what you see in your feed, that it will be pre-filtered. Yeah, that's what I'm um, saying. And if you don't know it's being filtered, you don't know it's being filtered. You'll never know. That's your world. That's going to be your world. And that's yeah. the end of it. I mean, I, I give that's the example sometimes of newspapers. When you pick up a newspaper, you think, gosh, this is probably just, you know, uh, basically a representation of, you know, some of knowledge and the best thinkers have been invited probably to, to contribute columns and so on. And what you don't know, what the readers don't know is how many people have been turned down by that newspaper or have not been published by that newspaper because they were speaking against the narrative supported by that newspaper. Yeah. So that's why, you know, when people read a newspaper or read mainstream or listen to mainstream media, they think that's the spectrum of normal discourse, of acceptable discourse. And if someone's outside that spectrum, they think that that must be a little bit risky kind of Lula kind of stuff, like yeah. wacky stuff. Uh, and that's the effect of the, it's a kind of effect of uh, filtering the filtering yeah, process. Totally. It's been really interesting having a chat with you, Dr. David Thunder, political philosopher at the University of Navarra, Pamplona, Spain.
Thank you, Thank you. for, um, for making some time. It was really interesting. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.